This yes. is hell. The history of fast food chains in black America is complicated, contradictory, and often reveals sordid motivations and policies related to attempts at achieving black liberation and freedom. The hyper-concentration of fast food franchises in communities of color betrays an outsourcing to private business of policies addressing racial inequality. The black-owned businesses and black-owned businesses alone, that black-owned businesses and black-owned businesses alone can finally bring about the promises of full citizenship for all, no matter your race. That has been denied from black Americans since the nation's founding, with all other avenues limited or completely cut off, turning into dead ends. Communities of color often turn toward black capitalism in an attempt to gain freedom from the very system that has oppressed people of color. The outcome has been of huge benefit to many black business owners, but the accessibility to starting a fast food franchise has, well, it's had other deleterious effects on the community, like unhealthy food causing obesity and the pushing out of grocery stores that creates food deserts and limits any opportunity for a healthy diet. We'll discuss the very complicated, complex history of fast food chains in black America in a moment when we speak with historian Marsha Chatlin, author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Marsha is a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University and is a leading public voice on the history of race, education, and food culture. Marsha is also author of Southside Girls Growing Up in the Great Migration. You can find out more about Marsha at Marsha Chatlin. Dot com. That's Marsha, C-H-A-T-E-L-A-I-N.com. Follow Marsha on Twitter at Dr. M. Chatlin. We have direct links to Marsha's website at our site, thisishell.com, and at our Facebook page and on Twitter as well. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this morning's show. If it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard how are you? Anything new about you? Good morning, sir. Uh, good morning to you. So, um, the internet is a buzz with a question. Yes. It's, I think, it's possibly of social and cultural importance. Perhaps even it will create political division. No, oh, sweet. And what is that or question? It may even raise national security concerns. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm not sure if we want to get involved. <laughs> well, yesterday we had a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, so I think we can basically get away with anything on this show. Okay, so the question is, is a taco a sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> that has everybody concerned right now? Is a taco a sandwich? Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Does it matter? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think the more important uh, news when it comes to food, Richard, is you know Mel eats sparrows. <laughs> yes. He uh, and he's going for a chicken. I hear. Yes, he <laughs> went after a chicken. Uh, neighbors have chickens, and one a couple of them got in the beer garden, and Mel apparently went after them. Uh, he has eaten sparrows. Uh, last week he got a pigeon, a big, fat pigeon. He eats rats on a regular basis. What is the one food that Mel will turn his nose up at? Up at? Tuna. Cat food. <laughs> what the hell is in cat food? If Mel will eat pigeons, rats, and sparrows, but won't eat cat food, you got to ask yourself, what the hell is in cat food? I'm starting to think it's... It's cats. 
<laughs> Richard, when we were speaking last week, I mentioned how my nephew got his uh, first round of the vaccine, and I uh, had no idea why he qualified to get it so oh, soon. We found the answer. Yes. I asked why he had already got the first round, but it, as of the last time you and I were together, Richard, I had not heard back from him, and my suspicions were growing at to exactly why he had already gotten the vaccine. Well, I finally found out why he qualified for early vaccination. And it's good news for you, Richard. Yes, tell me. For my nephew, already got the first round of the vaccine because, Richard, he works with the disabled. Uh-huh. Which I totally forgot. But great news for you, Richard, and everyone who works here on This Is Health. You all work with a disabled person, as in me, so I'm hoping you (laughs) qualify for early vaccination. Except from what I've seen of how the state of Illinois, where you and I live, will be rolling out the vaccines. It doesn't say anything about prioritizing the disabled or the people who work with them. Unlike the state where my nephew lives, they're in the first round. So, Richard, for you and everyone here on This Is Hell, I'm hoping when the state announces the second phase of who gets inoculated... Maybe they will prioritize the disabled, and then maybe we can convince the state you all should be getting the vaccine, too, because as you are working here on This Is Hell with a disabled person, me, we would hate to give that disabled person COVID-19, wouldn't we? We want to protect me from it, so I think that all of you workers here at This Is Hell who help out the disabled... I think you need to be prioritized. But far more important than any vaccination that can save us from a deadly virus. Richard, please tell us what's this week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what are they going to call the austerity bill? (laughs) What are they going to call the austerity bill? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, got nothing. We don't have any commercials. We don't take any grant money. We're not a not-for-profit. We can't afford to be a not-for-profit. We don't make enough profits to be able to be a not-for-profit. So, you're it. And thank you for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, but we must have your answer. By the end of Thursday's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, during this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff looks a war horse in the mouth. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? Quick update for those of you who are Patreon subscribers to This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Last year, throughout 2020, during our live streaming Friday, 10 a.m. Chicago time, Patreon podcast, Patreon show which is posted at the same place shortly after. We shared plenty of news from a northern Michigan small-town weekly newspaper I got as a gift subscription last year, that paper being something called the Houghton Lake Resorter. Through their editorial page section called Your Opinion, we reported on what folks in rural America who actually get the local paper were thinking in the run-up to the presidential election. And if you heard those podcasts on Patreon, and you still can by subscribing now, as all past Patreon podcasts are available to all new subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Nothing that has happened since Election Day should be of any surprise to you if you heard those Patreon podcasts where we featured with the good people of Houghton Lake and Roscommon County 
were sharing in their Your Opinion section of their community newspaper. Unfortunately, immediately after Election Day, the resorter was no longer being delivered to my home as it had been returned to the, news, uh, to the newspaper itself in Michigan by the post office as undeliverable. So they put a pause on my subscription. I contacted them around a month ago. I explained how I was no longer getting the paper and how our post office here in Chicago is horribly understaffed with dozens of postal workers unable to do their jobs due to the virus, to which the person in charge of subscription subscriptions replied in an official email from Houghton Lake, Houghton Lake Resorter, Wowzers! And I was promised the suspension of my subscription would be lifted and they would again try to deliver the newspaper. Last week I mentioned how I still had not received a single issue, and then suddenly... On Friday, last Friday, January 8th, I received the New Year's Eve issue of the Resorter. Then yesterday, as I returned home from the show, I was welcomed by the previous two weeks' issues of the Resorter, which all means on Friday's Patreon podcast, you are going to want to subscribe and tune in because now that Joe Biden has been elected president, we are returning to small-town America and the opinions held in Trump land, which prepared myself and all our Patreon patrons so none of us were surprised at all when what happened at the U.S. Capitol building last Wednesday happened. And to give you just a quick taste of what's happening in the resorter, one of their year-in-reviews ar- year-in-review articles is headlined, get this, there was good news before and after COVID. Yes, the area is in such denial of COVID that they actually think we are in the period after the pandemic, despite the very the front page of that very paper revealing a dramatic spike in cases and deaths from the virus in the, in the region. They have unprecedented number of deaths and infections in their county, and yet they have a headline in their paper, there was good news before and after COVID. But you can only find out what happened in small-town America during the month before the siege of the U.S. Capitol by subscribing to our Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show or podcast or whatever the hell this is. Prove me wrong. This is hell. And what makes this God's Favorite Radio Show? Well, we don't know. And it would be blasphemous to suggest that we do. But we do know, as listener Adam wrote to us overnight, that his favorite guest just might be yesterday's guest. Andreas Malm, who we talked to yesterday about his new book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. If you have a favorite guest or guests, tell us who they are, because right now we're trying to figure out who to have on the show next week, the day prior to, the day of, and the day after the inauguration. We're not doing a show on Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and instead we'll be streaming interviews on black history and uh, black liberation all day at thisishell.com. So we need to know who you think we should have on, who you think would be good to talk to about the inauguration, about uh, the post and pre-inauguration days. Please send us your recommendations to chuck at thisishell.com. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you on air and send along a gift of our appreciation as well. We also got an email from Dennis who writes, Hey, Chuck, I hope that this finds you, your girlfriend, Alex, and the rest of the This Is Hell crew well. I've been listening uh, for about four years and have been a Patreon subscriber for about as long, but I haven't ever sent you a guest suggestion for anyone. I want to suggest that you have Sharice Burden Stelly on as a guest. This past year, she co-authored an autobiography of W.E.B. Du Bois with a past guest on your show, several time past guest, Gerald Horn, and she's doing some incredible scholarship. And speaking of Gerald, we did an interview with him about the history of boxing last week that you've got to go back and listen to, even if you have no interest in boxing. 
So, uh, let's see, Dennis writes that um, Sharice Burden-Stelly wrote a fantastic review of Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, in the Boston Review in December 2020. It was the fifth most read article of the year. And she also has an upcoming project with another past guest of yours, Jody Dean, along with a ton of other projects. I strongly recommend you get her on the show. Thank you for your work and the wonderful resource that is your show. Take care, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis. So this brings up a question about guests. Uh, now, we have not had Isabel Wilkerson on our show to discuss her book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent, which listeners had suggested that we feature on the show in an interview with Ms. Wilkerson. But the moment Cast was named as the next title in Oprah's book club, we kind of drop the whole thing. So do we have someone on to analyze a book we've yet to discuss on the show? I don't know. But here's what Sharice Burden-Stelly argues in her Boston Review piece about the idea of caste. She writes, scholars who construe the United States as a caste system emphasize tradition, custom, attitude, and feeling as the sources of social intolerance, sidestepping issues such as capitalist exploitation and class-based antagonisms. Following this logic, a social change in how we relate to one another is more feasible than overhauling a global political economy rooted in the hierarchical ordering of humanity. In other words, all we have to do is individually be more polite to one another and we can overcome racism. There's no need to mention any correlation between racism and capitalism. And Burden Stelly also adds that the book's dismissal of any analysis of racial capitalism and descriptive assessment of caste offers a decontextualized, ahistorical, and inaccurate description of racial antagonism, caste, and class. So it's no wonder it became an Oprah Book of the Month selection, as Oprah diligently works to avoid any criticism of capitalism. But should we have a guest on to discuss, to criticize, and analyze a book that we have yet to feature on the show? Tell us what you think. And if you have any guest suggestions, ideas for topics, criticism that is constructive or even destructive, send it to Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com, message it to us via Facebook, or tweet it to us, and we'll likely share your thoughts on air. Coming up here on This Is Hell, the long and complicated history of fast food franchises in black America. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the inevitable Austerity Bill. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. Fast food franchises have been the savior for many entrepreneurs in the black community over the past 50-plus years. They have rejuvenated, rejuvenated neighborhoods and brought wealth and jobs back to communities that desperately need both. They also bring with them unhealthy food choices. They impact the overall food options of neighbors. They produce low-wage jobs and unequal relationships between the franchisor and the franchisee. And they're often the only way the government responds to the demands of the people of color in communities that need help. Here to help guide us through uh, the at times beneficial and at other times very problematic history of fast food in communities of color, historian Marcia Chatlin is author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Welcome to This Is Hell, Marcia. Hi, thank you for having me. This is a fascinating book that is 
I, I just found this really interesting. And even like the odd little trivial things that I stumbled across, like you point out how Dave Thomas worked directly for uh, the Colonel for the Kentucky Fried Chicken. And then he started up Arthur Treacher's, which I vaguely remember from my childhood. And then he started up Burger Chef, which I vaguely remember from my childhood until he had Wendy's, how all these entrepreneurs came out of fast food franchises. Even the the concept of uh, Marriott's franchises came out of uh, fast food. How much has fast food had an, had an impact on our economy, on our culture, even if we, and to what degree do you think we recognize that impact? Well, thank you so much for having me on this show. And I so appreciate the fact that um, this is a format in which we take seriously um, these questions about racial capitalism and these questions about um accountability, right? That what the state fails to do, the marketplace will convince us that they can do it. And so with franchising and the fast food industry, it's really interesting the ways that um, many of us can imagine that we can actually like distance ourselves from it by not eating it. And so this is something that I sometimes hear from a certain class of like liberal elites. Like I don't eat fast food. My kids don't eat fast food. But I don't think they realize that fast food is hyper um, determining all of the ways that we interact with um, with the food system. So um, you may not feed your kids McDonald's, but they're eating dino nuggets, right? Like the fact that we think of children's food as nuggets of chicken is part of the way that fast food um, shapes our thinking. The fact that our cars are fitted to allow us to consume inside of them is part of the legacy of fast food. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write franchise is because so much of the body of literature about the fast food industry in the US kind of takes two tones. One is a celebration of the free market capitalists and the innovators that created the form, or it is um, an excoriation of the people who eat fast food because of the health implications, or there's a conversation about wages and labor, which is also important, but there's something else in the middle. And I think that thing is the way that fast food is really predicated on our nation's long history of not only racial exclusion and discrimination, but the fact that we often turn to markets to solve the problems that have been created um, by uh, racist structures within, um, you know, our, our common society. Yeah, and I found that really fascinating that racism, which is imposed by capitalism, that people would think that capitalism might be able to save them from that racism. Uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But you start by writing of the August 2014 protests in Ferguson, Missouri, following the police killing of Michael Brown Jr. You write, of all the places that represented Ferguson in the public eye of that summer, the McDonald's restaurant at 9131 West Florissant uh, best symbolized the interplay between racial justice and the marketplace in America past and present. It you write that this McDonald's is the descendant of a somewhat bizarre but incredibly powerful marriage between a fast food behemoth and the fight for civil rights. After the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968 and the ensuing urban upheavals, the movement for racial justice pivoted its focus toward black business ownership. Hamburger, uh, fried uh, chicken, taco chains eagerly met the gaze of those interested in using business development as a strategy to quell unrest and introduced fast food franchising to inner city black communities. So how much have uh, fast food franchises been a boon to black owned businesses in communities of color, because I want to talk about the benefits that can happen if we're going to also talk about the problems that they create. 
Well, you know, I think that this is such a such an int- important point to raise because people often ask me after they read the book or hear me speak, you know, was it all bad or all good or is it a net, you know, net positive? How do we assess it? And I think in terms of what fast food did in these communities in 1968, are not the same things that these fast food restaurants are doing for communities in 2021. So from the perspective of someone like Herman Petty, who was the first African-American to franchise a McDonald's on the South side in Chicago, you know, reopening that McDonald's and making it um, a symbol of black owned business and being a philanthropist in the community and employing local people, you know, how can I argue against it considering the dire conditions in which people were living at the time? And at the same time, I think we have to recognize that once that is presented as viable public policy or a reasonable response to the reasons why people were um, so angry at the time is the problem. Because what tends to happen in moments of racial unrest, and we saw the same thing in 2020 after the killing of George Floyd, is that, you know, communities are consumed by the problems of police brutality, of joblessness, of under-resourced schools, of inadequate housing, right? Like the structure is so broken. And then the solution becomes buy from Black businesses or more businesses to employ people. And we know full well that most small businesses don't have the capacity to really lift people out of poverty. And so it's the sleight of hand that I am so concerned about. And so, you know, from the view of 68 or 72, a few Black-owned businesses in Black communities, great, that's fine. And at the same time, that this is not a sustainable practice if we are really serious about getting um, to the heart of racial injustice. And you point out how prior to 1968, the founding generation of fast food franchises or fa- frans- uh, fast food franchises worked hard, made wise decisions, and made the most of every opportunity. For many of the first families of fast food franchising, they were connected not only by place, many of them from Southern California, but they were also racially homogenous and privileged in their time. The people who established the franchises that are so easily identified by their logos, their slogans, and the distinct taste of their French fries over competitors were all white Americans. Americans whose whiteness worked in their favor. How did their whiteness work in their favor? And maybe conversely, how could non-whites be locked out of the pioneering days of franchising? Well, you know, so much of business is, um, you know, it's such a it's such a lie when we talk about, um, you know, the hard work that goes into the establishment of business. You know, business success is really contingent on access to capital, um, extension of credit, sometimes family wealth and um, opportunism. And so this early generation of, of fast food folks, um, they just were given a chance, many chances to fail and then succeed. So if you look at the McDonald's brothers, they failed at a lot of businesses. They, you know, they wanted to run a movie theater. They had a hot dog stand. They had um, tried their hand at a number of things and they were still extended um, the financial opportunity to start McDonald's. And when we think about all of the various um, components to create the fast food industry. It isn't just the idea on how to make burgers. It's also about the highway system that obliterated communities of color to allow so many cars to travel through um, to drive-ins. It's about residential segregation that created the bedroom communities of the suburbs and the lending practices that kept neighborhoods all white and the GI Bill 
that worked in concert with this. And so there are all of these different um, places that fast food emerge, and they emerge because of the incredible financial um, value of whiteness. And so when we think about this early history of the food industry, a lot of it's predicated not only on exclusion, but then when we see the ways that in African-American communities, Black business had an outsized role in people's lives because that Black business owner, that person who was able to create a financially stable um, funeral home or restaurant or establishment, they were also negotiating the terms with white city leaders about access to schools. They were helping to get someone out of jail if they were, you know, caught by the police and they were trying to prevent a lynching. And so you start to see in one community business being built on all of these policies and all of these practices that exclude uh, people of color. And then black communities, you see all of this power given to business people because of um, a lack of connection to the larger um, promises of the state. Now, I want to just talk about this McDonald's situation for a second, because I want to let's make sure I understand this correctly. You write that the roots of the contemporary conversation about race and fast food began with the founding of McDonald's in the 40s. And as you were mentioning, when Maurice and Richard McDonald established their hamburger drive-in, they may have been unconcerned with the racist or racial politics of their age. Yet segregation, racial restrictions on housing, discriminatory financial lending, and the growth of a highway system that decimated African-American communities allowed the men all the advantages necessary to establish a formidable business. So whether they recognized that this was due to racial restrictions or not, and that's their issue, uh, they, you know, that's what was helping them become so successful. So... How important is institutional racism in the form of housing segregation, discriminatory lending, urban planning to the success of McDonald's? Could McDonald's have had the success they have had without the post-World War II institutional racism? You know, this is so hard because um, burgers are delicious. So sure, people would have purchased them. And, um, you know, the McDonald's brothers were very smart in what they did. And at the same time, I I don't think that we can ever um, um, uncouple American capitalist structures from the ways that race um, allow them to kind of exist. And so what I can say is this. The entire kind of selling of McDonald's um, in those years, especially after Ray Kroc took it over as a franchise and moved it um, to uh, Illinois, I think that all of that um, is the sum total of ideas about the American consumer marketplace. And so much of that marketplace was about the exclusion of African-Americans and violence against people. And so um, if you look at the early ads of McDonald's where, you know, it's these white families that they're in their cars, they're going from their suburban homes, they're going to the drive-in, the child is um, considered, you know, the main target of the advertising it. All of those things are developed based on an idea of racial exclusion, right? So even if the bank lending wasn't as generous, and even if there wasn't housing segregation, I think that the logics of the marketplace are all about um, creating a vision or an idea of how the world should be. So I don't know if we could ever, you know, like imagine a different way of business proceeding in the United States. 
You also point out that in the race to capture black hearts and minds through targeted marketing and philanthropy, the fast food industry provided a platform for black culture and taste making. So they switched from this all-white marketing that was at the beginning to more of marketing toward people of color. You write how regional and national advertising campaigns, as well as on-the-ground franchisee engagement, brought black dance, art, and history to audiences inside and outside of restaurants, from high-profile philanthropic partnerships with organizations like the United Negro College Fund and the underwriting of gospel music performances and black literary contests. Black franchisees became leaders in their communities. The growth of black franchisee networks and direct appeals to black audiences uncovered the way that fast food satiated uh, hunger for representation and culture validation. So how big of a role, how important of a role does fast food play in black mass culture, if you will? How important is fast food in raising awareness of communities and cultures of color to their white audience? I mean, it's incredible. And a lot of it initially that was done, and again, through Chicago-based advertising firm Burrell Communications, which um, really helped codify the form of what they call ethnic marketing or marketing um, tailored to different groups in this, you know, the segmenting segmentation of markets. Um, You know, it's so important because when I was looking at the McDonald's ads that I grew up with, the ones that I watched, you know, growing up in Rogers Park in the 80s and 90s, you know, so much of it was about kind of pulling back the curtain uh, on black culture for a mass audience. And McDonald's understanding that you can do that and you not only, you know, um, cater to a base, but you can also kind of expand what's acceptable in terms of national marketing brands. So McDonald's was really um, important in getting black athletes like Michael Jordan, a platform that they sell products to everyone. The Williams sisters have been in McDonald's ads. You know, these are for everyone. But initially, in trying to kind of tap the boundaries of where black uh, spokespeople, black celebrities, black talent could represent a brand. McDonald's had a had a kind of um, smart approach to it because they had spent so much time and a lot of resources on researching this issue and experimenting with different types of ads. And so I think that one of the issues that I wanted to bring up was that because the fast food industry has been a longtime partner of our legacy and our traditional civil rights organizations, that they have underwritten so much of the material that we have available today. If you think about um, organizations like the United Negro College Fund, um, the NAACP's AXO program, which is a, you know, like a young people's um, arts and academic performance um, competition every year. A lot of that is sponsored by McDonald's and their competitors. Um, This is no small thing, because if you think about the incredible costs that are necessary to preserve, you know, cultural forms and to share them with the world, they had a huge impact. And in many ways, this book changed my perspective on fast food in the sense that when we think about the food itself, we don't think of it as anything very special because it's widely available and many of us eat it um, out of convenience or necessity. But when you think about the level of creativity necessary to kind of elevate a mediocre food product through um, children's characters and books and ads and music, I think I started to really see um, the creative impulses that are necessary for this industry and 
by pivoting towards black consumers, it opened up incredible opportunities for black creators. We are speaking with historian Marcia Chatlin. She is author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Find out more about Marcia at MarciaChatlin.com, and you can follow Marcia on Twitter at Dr. M. Chatlin. And uh, we are actually airing right now, streaming live right now from our studio in the West Ridge neighborhood, so right next to your former Rogers Park neighborhood. I had no idea you were from Rogers Park. Yeah, I see your offices are on Devon, right? Yes, they are. Yes, uh, very uh, familiar. And so, uh, yeah, when we're going to be having our 25th anniversary, hopefully, this July. So if you have an excuse to come back to Rogers Park and join us, it would be fantastic <laughs> to have you here. Uh, one of the things uh, that we all know is that racism limits opportunities. So why did racism not limit opportunities when it came to fast food fran- franchises being black-owned businesses? Why was that opportunity given to black entrepreneurs? You know, you have to think about the moment where this comes together. So in 1968, um, after the assassination of Martin Luther King, but even before King's assassination, there's a lot of kind of question about what's the next direction in terms of black freedom struggles. Um you know, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense had been founded two years earlier, and there was a concern about um, a perceived sense of radicalism among Black youth, although we know the Black radical tradition is much um, longer than the founding of the Black Panther Party. But I think it was um, a perception. Um, King is speaking out um, against the Vietnam War. He's asking these questions about the life of the poor and reflecting on the failure of Johnson's war on poverty. And you know, this question of economics as a strategy, again, wasn't new in 68. But I think what happened was that there is this question of where's everyone going to settle? Who was going to be the heir to Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy? What were going to be the new strategies? Because, you know, between 54 and 68, there were all of these incredible pieces of legislation about the question of racism that didn't change materially Black people's lives. And so, Um, So as more and more of these civil rights leaders were thinking about what's the next path, the introduction of the rhetoric that economic development, black business development, black capitalism would be the next stage of development um, suggested that people had to grow up out of direct action. People had to grow up away from beloved community as the goal, and they had to focus on money. And at the same time, you have Richard Nixon, who is, you know, I have I said to a group of students yesterday, you know, like he was often in the kind of running for the worst, most racist president ever. But, you know, this guy comes in um, in 2016 and he's breaking all records. Um, But, you know, Nixon is promising black capitalism and not because he believes in black power or civil rights. It's because he understands that by seeding economic opportunities in black communities, he doesn't have to delve really into his resistance to integration, fair housing, school busing, any of these issues that could actually materially change people's lives. So all of this is to say that when McDonald's enters the frame, they are taking temperature of the nation. On one hand, they have a lot of white franchise owners who no longer want to do business in black areas because they are afraid of backlash and they don't want another uprising to put them in the crosshairs. They see an administration coming into the White House that is willing to actually fund Black-owned businesses, and they used a lot of um, their connections with uh, federal agencies to get those minority business loans to get Black people into franchises. And they soon discovered, after the first Black franchise owners were installed, that they can make a lot of money in the communities 
that they were in because there were fewer and fewer consumer choices as a result of uprisings, as well as the flight of white-owned businesses out of black neighborhoods. So all of these things converge together and McDonald's sees a way to make money. And although Ray Kroc was also a racist, um, he was not um, foolish and he would be willing to accommodate black people entering into the McDonald's system if it was going to make lots of money. And so you see the fast food franchise become a symbol of all of these different um, ideas about what black progress looks like. And the consumer base really responded to it. And well, to what degree is black capitalism the only tool that black activists are you are allowed to have in their toolbox to what extent is mm. the reason that we uh, we see so many people believing that there can be capitalism without racism that capitalism can overcome racism that capitalism th- can bring about racial freedom and the citizenship denied to black americans for so long uh, how much is that all due to the fact that that's the only kind of protest that's the only kind of action that they are allowed in that is within the framework of capitalism, black capitalism? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, you know, it's it's because um, economic boycott um, as a demonstration strategy of making people suffer as a result of bad acts is sometimes interpreted as economic boycott is supposed to show how much um, economic power you have. And those are two very different things. And so, um, you know, when King gives his final speech at um, Mason Temple in Memphis the day before he's assassinated, he is encouraging the crowd to engage in economic boycott, not because he thinks it is important to show how financially um, important black people are. Although he makes his point, he says, we have to stand in solidarity with our sanitation workers. They are feeling the pain. How are we going to deprive ourselves of these material objects? How are we going to um, tell these businesses that we stand in solidarity, even if we aren't sanitation workers too? How are we going to collectively, right, go without in order to prove a point about solidarity? This gets completely like lost. (laughs) And so, um, you know, it gets interpreted into, you know, why don't we try to maximize the respect for the black dollar? But, you know, one of the things that um, I I really thought about a lot, um, and I think was particularly poignant when I was writing the book, was that, you know, recently, um, McDonald's was the target of a lawsuit of, you know, more than 50 black franchise owners. And their argument is that actually, capitalism is limited that we've done everything right and we follow the rules of the system. And because we are black, we are millionaires, but we are not multimillionaires. And this was something that was really hard for me to kind of like swallow because I didn't want my scholarship to be in the interest of, you know, feeling bad for aggrieved millionaires. But I think that the point that's being made is, yes, capitalism can leverage you to a point, but race will ultimately be the determining factor of how deeply capitalism will embrace you. And I think that, you know, um, throughout the book, I have stories of, you know, black franchise owners who feel that even though they're given the opportunity to own a franchise, their opportunities within that system is limited because of race. I could not help but think when you were explaining how Richard Nixon, President Nixon, as you're saying, 
the most racist president prior to uh, President Trump. I, I couldn't understand why he would be so supportive of black capitalism. But you write how in the 1970s in Cleveland, Operation Black Unity formed with the explicit purpose of challenging the presence of white franchisees in black communities and compelling the city's first black mayor, Carl Stokes, into action on the issue. And you explain how black capitalism not only created friendships of convenience among pro-business enthusiasts, but it also could easily tear apart these same comrades when they were forced to agree upon a definition of victory. So how can black capitalism undermine unity? And is black capitalism, especially when you see somebody like President Nixon supporting it, is black capitalism a kind of divide and conquer colonial strategy? Yeah, um, I'm not a fan. <laughs> um, so I think there are a few things. And, you know, there are scholars who have really great debates about this question. Um, you know, one person who I think um, writes really well about this is Nishani Frazier, who says, you know, black capitalism sometimes gets a really, you know, harsh reading, but you know, collective capitalism, the types of things that black people were doing in this period of time, that we have to extend them a little bit more grace. And and I appreciate that analysis, but I, I just don't, you know, it's, it's the idea that if there's like a fire in your house, you try to bring a barrel of fire to extinguish it. Like capitalism is part of the problem. It's at the root of so many of the issues. So the idea that you can have um, a conscious capitalism, and now um, there are all of these initiatives for an inclusive capitalism, the new capitalism, it's like, it doesn't quite work like that. Because any structure where there, um, the success of the structure is based on winners and losers, and exclusions and a scarcity model, it, it just doesn't work. And so I think what happens with black capitalism that I think is really interesting, and we still see the same type of stuff today, is that the alliances that black activists have to make in order to fulfill the agenda are very real. And this is why, you know, you see people who had been part of the radicalism of the Black Panther Party a few years later, you know, they're meeting with Nixon, you know, they they are Reaganites. Um, this is why, you know, very early after Trump was elected, his first meetings in the White um, in Trump Tower are Jim Brown, Steve Harvey, Kanye West. Like, this is the kind of nonsense that we've been seeing since the late 1960s, where proximity to power, access to the White House is interpreted as, um, you know, that it will lift all boats because when one black person is rich, all black people are rich. It's like, it doesn't work like that. There's a lot of very wealthy black people. I'm not wealthy as a result of it. <laughs> so you mentioned racial capitalism is the extra and that is the extraction of value from a person of color. The theory argues that uh, for capitalism to survive, it must exploit and prey upon uh, an unequal differentiation of human la uh, value. And within our context, the unequal value is the outcome of racism, both institutional and social. While fast food may provide opportunities for black owned businesses as franchises, are they still extracting capital, taking wealth out of the black community is one of the few opportunities black business owners were given. Was that a process that still extracts, that still engages in racial capitalism? I mean, 100%, because it works because of hypersegregation. It works because of um, limited access to political power. It works because of a starved public sphere in which people are just scrapping to survive. And so, you know, yes. And then I guess the thing that I am most offended by that it grafts itself onto a narrative of freedom struggles, 
then a Black-owned McDonald's becomes an extension of Martin Luther King's dream. And it's like, what are you talking about, right? I think maybe that's what probably offends my sensibilities the most as a historian. It's like, keep Martin Luther King out of this, please. Um, but I think that this is this is part of what happens. And so, you know, people have often asked me, like, do you think we should um, outlaw fast food or, you know, what should be the solution and, you know, what we can do to fight this? And honestly, I think the first step is to be less contemptuous about the nutritional choices of poor black people. Part of the reason why I wrote this book is that I was um, part of groups that were interested in um, questions about ethical consumption and food justice. And there was an incredibly kind of racist tone that people would take about the consumption of fast food as if the consumption of fast food isn't constructed and as if it isn't sometimes the most practical thing to do. Um, if it, you know, if you're advocating for food justice and you don't care about utility rates and seeing if people have places to live, to cook food and time to cook food because of the ways that they work, then the work that you're doing to me is personally uninteresting. And so um, at the end of the day, no business should be recruited in the service of solving the problems of people, you know, in the same ways that, you know, sometimes people will say to LeBron James, like stick to basketball, like just dribble and shut up. I want industry, I want business to just do what they're going to do and stay out of the lives of people. Like we actually have a system that can take care of people and it's called the public good. We have governments, we have resources, we have taxes, we have all sorts of ways that people can get their needs met that have nothing to do with whether a black owned business opens in your neighborhood and then is in the philanthropic space to take care of people because they're being good or they're being nice. And you point out how fast food outcomes are often seen as the outcome of choices and circumstances and the belief that, as you point out in a New York Times article, how they have this belief that everyone has the same choices and circumstances. Everybody has the same access to everything. And you write that for too long, research on race and fast food has placed the onus solely on black palates and parents for the dismal stale of black, state of black health. That's this whole idea of that's the individual responsibility. It's your fault. It's not the system's fault. Without an understanding of how we got here, the food justice movement will never move beyond the idea of individual choice and continue to ignore structural disequilibrium. Can individual choice bring about food justice? And if not, why not? Can't we all simply choose to be better? And that will create better food options. Why doesn't individual choice, why don't consumer-based politics work when it comes to food justice? Because how we consume um, and what we consume is so based on the other parts of our life. And so um, I can cook healthy meals if I'm not working 20 hours a day. And I can, you know, spend time on, I'm, I have the New York Times cooking app, which I enjoy very much. I can start looking at recipes and doing all this kind of stuff because um, I have a home that has uh, natural gas that I can afford to pay that bill every month to do that. I have a constant source of electricity to refrigerate the foods that I want to cook with. I go, I have access to a doctor. If I'm sick, I just go to a doctor because I have healthcare, right? So all 
of these things, um, if they are all lined up in the lives of people, um, and then you say, well, how come you're not spending more time, you know, braising kale? I guess that's fair because all of your other needs are met. But the ways that we eat food is such a indicator of our lifestyle, um, of our time, of our focus, of our energies, so that this individual choice, this nutrition education, which is important. I'm not saying that um, we should abandon attempts to help people think about the ways that they interact with the food system, but like this will not get us out of this, out of this problem that we have. And so I think that to be more discerning about capitalism and to be more discerning about the market allows us to be more sensitive to the various stresses that overdetermine um, what people eat, how people eat, or even if they have time to think about what they're eating. And individual actions kind of obfuscate the idea that we can work collectively, and also it ignores the the system has an impact on us. One of the things that you point out in your book, as you were saying at the very beginning of our conversation, about how fast food uh, it, problems aren't, don't just stay within the fast food restaurant or its customers alone. You write, as the brothers of the McDonald's brothers, small business evolved into an industry-defining franchise. McDonald's was also shaping the country's definition of what historian Elizabeth Cohen calls a consumer republic. You add Cohen argues that as consumption of goods and services rose in the 1950s, Americans began to see their nation as the model for the world of a society committed to mass consumption and what were assumed to be its far-reaching benefits. These benefits extended beyond the department store or the local five-and-dime shop in the consumer republic. Cohen asserts the marketplace also dictated most central dimensions of post-war society, including the political economy as well as the political culture. Back in November of last year, we spoke with Georgos Kalas and Susan Paulson, co-authors of The Case for Degrowth on the unsustainability of an economic policy based on constant economic growth and how it is de- devastating to our en- environment, contributing to everything from climate change to the pandemic. Did growth and hyperconsumption all start with fast food? How destructive is fast food proving to be as an economic model, if you will? Well, part of the problem with um, fast food as a kind of economic model, and this goes into the question of environment and racial justice, is that it the volumes that it requires. It's, you know, having written this book, every time I go to um, a restaurant and I see that they've offered a new kind of like menu item, all I can think about is the supply chain and what it takes to get people there. Um, you know, when... Um, for instance, like when Popeye's introduces the chicken sandwich a few years ago, all I can think of is like, ooh, that supply chain for chickens is bananas. And how do they get enough chicken breasts to their restaurants? How do they get the other, um, you know, accompaniments for this sandwich to their restaurants to meet demand? And who is working in the factories? Who is working at the poultry farms? All of these people are necessary in order for people to enjoy the sandwich and then put it on Instagram or Twitter. And so I think that um, while fast food probably, I won't say um, started it, I think that there's other industries that probably initiated the process, fast food learned from them. So the Fordism um, of, you know, the assembly line and the the, cre- the production of cars very much um influence the assembly line approach to making hamburgers and having it delivered quickly. Um, The idea that 
we um, as Americans, uh, because of the vast resources of our supermarket system, we can eat any kind of food whenever we want. There's no kind of sensibility about seasonal seasonal foods, and it gets worse and worse. I I marvel the fact that I could go to a grocery store right now and have a pineapple if I wanted to. There's no reason on the East Coast I should be getting a pineapple 12 months out of the year. But consumer demand um, drives this kind of production system that is unsustainable and that is dangerous, not only for the environment, but for, for people. You know, the vast distances things have to travel in order for us to consume them and the volume we have to consume is really alarming. You also mentioned consumer activism within the black community when it comes to fast food chains. When it comes to that kind of activism, what are its shortcomings when it comes to trying to reclaim a denied citizenship, uh, the, the failures of the promises that black Americans have faced with democracy? How does consumer activism fall short in bringing about black freedom? I think because the terms of negotiation are often done in in favor or in the service of that market. And so what happens, for instance, is, you know, after the George Floyd summer, um, all of these companies were doing their, you know, their thoughts and prayers messages. You know, we, you know, Black Lives Matter, we stand behind all those who fight for racial justice. We are going to commit to, and those commitments, um, and McDonald's made similar commitments in, you know, the, the 60s throughout the present. The commitments are often made on the parameters in which that industry has determined it's viable. So when McDonald's in the 80s was the target of protests because of racial discrimination among the franchise owners, they commit to making more deposits in black banks or opening up you know, diversity hiring within their corporate headquarters. They commit to um, allowing more people to enter franchising. Um, those are fine, but they don't really get to the heart of the people who are most vulnerable to the racist structures, right? Like if McDonald's said, you know what, we're going to take all of our money in our, um, you know, government relations office, we're going to take all the money that we use for lobbying, and we're going to put it into, um, you know, campaigns about police abolition, then that's how we're going to, you know, be a voice for George Floyd. I'd say, whoa, that's a, that's a pretty good approach, right? Like we think that um, marketplace consumer, um, marketplace activism, all of the terms are stuck in that market and it ignores the fact that how much markets um, influence public policy. And it's public policy that I think that we can make the most difference. So did fast food bring a food crisis to black communities that did not exist before while at the same time bringing in businesses that did not exist? Because one of the things that you bring up in your book, and I have never heard this mentioned before in this whole controversy over food deserts, and that is the impact of the hyper concentration of fast food franchises in communities of color. So how what is the connection between fast food franchising and giving Black-owned businesses an opportunity in communities of color. What is the connection between that and undermining the opportunity of a Black-owned grocery store? Well, one of the things that's important to note is that during this period of time where the federal government was giving a lot of subsidies and assistance to Black-owned businesses under Nixon's Black Capitalism campaign, grocery stores were not included in the small business provision. 
And grocery stores and fast food franchises are considered different types of businesses for the purpose of this type of government assistance. And some of that might have changed now in recognition of um, of the the crisis in food deserts, but also, you know, it's a different business model. And it's a business model in the grocery stores where the margins are very thin and you have product that... Um, is not all shelf stable and you need a certain kind of square footage and fast food requires a lot less and yields a lot more. And so I think that when we think about, you know, why are there no supermarkets in certain communities, we forget the fact that, you know what, some of these communities used to have supermarkets and they left after uprisings. They left after um, communities were pressuring them to hire local people. They left because they were um, attempts to hold them count accountable for the low quality service and goods that they sold. So, you know, this is an, an evolution of how communities um, were able to get resources and how they lost them. And fast food presented just a much easier way of um, placating the desire to see more business. And then, you know, what fast food provided um, became very compatible with um, the stressful ways in which people were forced to live because of work, um, because of lack of resources. So I think that, um, you know, we have to really think more creatively about the assumption that I think can sometimes undergird a lot of these conversations. And the assumption is that some communities have a natural affinity towards these types of foods instead of, um, you know, certain communities have been guided into these relationships with certain types of foods that we have to think about uh, politically and not just in terms of individual um, preferences. You mentioned fast food opportunities for black business owners based on being delivered cheaply, uniformly, and without consideration of a person's social status. Uniformity suggests that wherever you go, that franchise will have the same product and you can be assured it will be the same, unlike an independent singular restaurant where the quality is more uncertain. Sure, it could be far more healthy and taste better at the independent restaurant, but it may also be worse for you on both counts and you don't know what to expect. What is the impact of that uniformity which we see happening across the country on a community, especially a community of color? How does a, a community, a local culture and society, how does it change when it becomes the site of hyper-concentrated uniformity? Oh, I think that's a great question. Um, I think that what happens particularly with McDonald's and um, black communities is that um, the community might imbue it with some specificity, that becomes really meaningful. And so that's why, um, you know, some of these McDonald's restaurants that um, have, uh, you know, pictures of black history makers, or um, they might have themes that are about athletics or, you know, art. There's a way in which I think a lot of black franchisees, because they see this as a way of promoting and talking to communities, that you start to see these like touches that um, are on one hand in line with the rules, but I think are attempts to distinguish themselves and have their own character. But I think what also can start to happen 
is that these spaces become places in which there's a uniform product, but then the uses of those spaces become really specific. So whether it's a McDonald's where a lot of senior citizens go and have coffee in the morning together, whether it becomes a de facto meeting place, whether it becomes um, the drop-off location for you know parents and teenagers, I think people start to make meaning and to start to have new uses in the process. Marsha, one last question for you. We have been speaking with historian Marsha Chatlin. She is author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Marsha is a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University and is a leading public voice on the history of race, education, and food culture. Check out Marsha's previous book from 2015, Southside Girls Growing Up in the Great Migration. You can find out more about Marsha at her her website, MarshaChatlin.com, and follow her on Twitter at DrMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMDRMD
contend with the fact that these are also people who are in the most intimate positions within household domestic labor, as well as the preparation of food. And so, yes, I think that there is something to it by creating these hyper sterile environments in which food is prepared and that um, customers can see food being prepared played a huge role in how fast food was perceived because fast food was considered um, prior to the 1940s um, as things that um, construction workers and people who had been out late drinking would consume. And part of the narrative of White Castle was that, um, you know, they expanded because middle class um, housewives would send out their servants to come you know, to pick up White Castle for them to eat, that this was a class of people who were now eating their products and that they were on to something. So, yeah, I love the question. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for being on the show this week, uh, today. This is a, a really, really great book. Everybody should check out your work. Marsha Chatlin is author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. It's a totally different look at black history from all the dozens and dozens of interviews that we have done on black history on our show. Marsha is also the author of Southside Girls Growing Up in the Great Migration. You can find out more about her at MarshaChatlin.com. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. It's also very weird that White Castle is connected with sterility, at least in my experience, because in my neighborhood in East Detroit, the White Castle, right at the border of Detroit and East Detroit at 8 Mile and Gratiot, that White Castle wasn't all that sterile, as in it was the place where sex workers hung out every night. It was a 24-7 White Castle, and starting at about 11 o'clock, you would see sex workers uh, before going to work, after going to work, sometimes on the job at the White Castle, which really didn't give you a feeling of sterility. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell, I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from hell is, is a taco a sandwich? No, it is not. That is not today's question from hell. What are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? The person with our favorite answer gets uh, your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Leave your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, or email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth when Jeff reveals the U.S. military violations of their hospitality code. Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from Al. I will, but, you know, I've, I've never eaten at a White Castle. Really? And, I mean, I didn't grow up here. Right. But I do think that's, I mean, I just found that fascinating that they modeled their buildings after the White Tower. The Water Tower downtown, yeah. yeah. I never, uh, I never, well, you know, not growing up around here, I would never have made that connection. So. I totally forgot about it until I read it in her book. I knew that was the case from a Chicago history class I had back in the early 90s, but I completely forgot about that. Yeah, there used to be like one by our high school down at the bottom of the hill, but uh, no, I mean, I don't know. It was just not something I was interested in. Sen Metropolitan Academy. That's Sen High School right over here. Right. Uh, Kitty Corner from it is a White Castle, and you see those kids dodging yeah. through the five corners over there to get over that White Castle at lunchtime all the time. All right, so what's our question from hell? <laughs> the question from hell is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? Bradley R. says the Bitter Truth and Budget <laughs> Reconciliation Act. <laughs> I like that. Dan L. says the Paul Van Hindenburg Act. <laughs> Rosario A. says 
Rich luxuries matter. <laughs> Does the Hindenburg Act mean that there's going to be a whole bunch of people dying in Parkhurst, New Jersey in the very near future? <laughs> I think it means it's going to blow up. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> um, Dan O. says, the Joe Biden Memorial Bootstrap Act. <laughs> and Andrew S. says, Sakma, the supporting underserved communities with kindness and mercy act <laughs> sakma nice and austin r says the prosper act putting revenues over support for the people equals re-election <laughs> and last we have cody saying the act to show we finally care about the peasants. <laughs> I'm sure that they do. Don't forget, we are still looking for volunteer board operators here on This Is Hell who can show up uh, once a week, maybe, and uh, for our daily 20, 10 a.m. show here at our studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. And uh, Danny Muller, yes, we are going to get in contact with your nephew who said that he is interested in being on the show. So we will be contacting him shortly. But if you are interested in being a board operator here on the show or doing or contributing to the show in a more remote way, we have all sorts of work that needs to be done and have very limited resources, but we can offer a very modest stipend. All you have to do is just email us, chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com, and uh, maybe you can suddenly be a part of This Is Hell here on the show. Richard, who is on tomorrow's show, beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Anthropologist Ida Susser. Yes. On class, police violence, and French street protests. The name, of the, the name of the article, which is at a blog called Focal, uh, F-O-C-A-A-L blog, which is the blog of Focal, Journal of Global and Historical Anthropology. Uh, Ida's article is called COVID, Police Brutality and Race, Are Ongoing French Mobilizations Breaking Through the Class Boundaries. Thanks to everyone who has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise. You can also support This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly Patreon podcast that has a new monologue from me each and every week and a classic archive archived interview that cannot be found anywhere else online. All you have to do is sign up now at patreon.com slash thisishell. Tune in tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Marsha Chatlin, our guest today. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking her. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. With my most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>